0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills.
1: The more muscle memory
0: that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com/slash metaverse impact. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's gonna want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? And this
2: is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
3: Memory is a skill like every other skill. It's like thinking, reading, writing, dancing, singing. It's like all your other skills, except for one thing. All your other skills are based on memory. So your memory is at the crux of every other skill that you have. So if you want to improve all your other skills, all you have to do is improve one skill, your memory.
2: That's Frank Felberbaum. I first met Frank a couple of decades ago when I was hosting the television series Scientific American Frontiers. He astounded me with his ability to remember names and faces, something many of us, and I certainly include myself, often struggle with. So we invited Frank to Clear and Vivid to share his memory skills with us. Frank, this is really fun to be talking with you today.
3: Yes, Alan, it's been a long time.
2: (laughs) It has, but I remember your name very well because you taught me how to remember a lot of stuff.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, names and faces are the most difficult thing to remember. My name, my last name especially, you would have to visualize the name. It sounds verbal, but it's really an image that you can see in your mind's eye. The first part of the name is fell. That's easy to remember. Right, something's falling. The middle part sounds like a bottle of beer, beer, fell beer. And the, the end part sounds like a bomb, fell beer bomb. And in your mind, in your image, you will see... Bottles of beer falling down on my nose, which is the image you should try to remember on my face. Why your nose? I, I just chose that because it's outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> and all the beer would explode and go all over my face. And uh, you cannot forget an image like that.
2: It's, uh, that's so interesting about remembering things. It's not only that we remember images, visualizations, but we really remember them forever if they're cockeyed in some way, if they're funny or lewd, or any, anything that's out of the ordinary that, that makes your brain go, whoa, what, it's hard to forget. Absolutely. In fact, it's
3: interesting you say that. I have a copy of a book called Rhetorica and Herenium, right? This is the oldest book on memory in the world. Oh, Really? It was written in 82 BC. Uh, and it, they think it was written by Cicero, but it actually was an anonymous author. Back in those days, rhetoric or oratory or speech was a very, very important thing. Everybody had to be good at it. So therefore, they had to have a good memory. And lots of techniques were developed in Greece and Rome. And this was the first book ever written. First one, 82 BC, imagine. And it's still being printed today in Europe and used as a teaching tool. What are some of the uh, tips that they give you in that book? Well, one of the quotes says that ordinary things easily slip from the memory while the striking and novel stay longer in the mind. Uh. Which is exactly what you said. Yeah. You know, it's funny, but many people believe that memory is a mysterious event, that it happens to us without permission. It's unconscious, when in reality, it's a conscious act. It's something that you do rather than something that happens to you. If you want to think
2: of it in vocabulary, it's a verb and not a noun. You know, what's interesting to me is I think a real demonstration of what you're saying is a story that starts your book where you're teaching memory to a 100 people in a classroom, and you start by having them introduce themselves one at a time, giving their name and, I think, where they're from. And then at the end of the class you call them out by name, one after another, a hundred names and, and tell them where they're from. You can't be born to do that. You have to achieve that, it seems to me.
3: Well, it's a skill. You have to train yourself to do that. Uh, I wasn't born with a good memory. And I remember that, that moment, <laughs> as you described it, it was sensational because everybody in the room, they were from 20 different countries Uh, they were astounded by that. And after I did that, they believed. (laughs) Right. I can imagine. (laughs) No, they walked away and they were using the system on all their clients, on all their customers. It was amazing.
2: You must have taught thousands of people, right? Yeah. In
3: Europe, uh, I lived in Europe for 12 years. I used to give uh, seminars to uh, corporations and I would say I, I trained about between 10 and 20,000 people and then when I came back I formed my own company here in the United States, which is memory training systems and and I did the same exact thing. I, I think I dealt with a close to 150 companies mm. uh, and I trained their salespeople, their staff, Uh, even the CEOs and the top management wanted to be part of it because they were anxious about it. They were worried that someone was coming up behind them to take their place, and they had to keep sharp, and this allowed them to do that.
2: You know, when you said they wanted to keep sharp, I remembered something you said to me once, that working on your memory and keeping your memory sharp Helps you with all your other abilities. I said that. <laughs> yeah, the, you said <laughs> that, that.
3: Yes, that's I remember you're saying it. Uh, <laughs> that's true. You know, I was just about to say that memory is a skill like every other skill. It's like thinking, reading, writing, dancing, singing. It's like all your other skills, except for one thing. All your other skills are based on memory. So your memory is at the crux of every other skill that you have. So if you want to improve all your other skills, all you have to do is improve one skill, your memory. Mm. So what I what I thought about was uh, basically that the only target that our memory has is information. We want to remember information, mm. whether it be... Names and faces, which is people information. uh, Spoken information, which is what we're doing. uh, Numerical information, which is all the numbers we deal with on a daily basis. And finally, written information. And a lot of this is fragile. Now, there are certain powers that you have that you can deal with these categories, with with this information one of those powers is the power of observation
2: so this is the first thing you have to be aware of right you have to be you have to be paying attention right absolutely
3: not only paying attention but concentrating so the first step the first threshold is observing and you can take in large gulps of information with your brain and your memory that's the human mind but your brain has the ability to filter out 99% of the information coming at you and allow you to focus on the one thing that you want to do, okay? And that's concentration.
2: You know, in your book, I came across a really interesting exercise to test observation and to develop observation, I think. You talk about lemons and, <laughs> and find, finding a lemon that's your lemon because it has, I guess, some certain characteristics. That that's right. That was
3: an exercise I did with many uh, groups, corporations, individuals, even schools. You come in to teach a class with a barrel full of lemons. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. Depending on how many how <laughs> many students or how many people, so I get twenty, twenty five, thirty lemons and really nice ones. I go to the supermarket, (laughs) and I look for really juicy lemons. And I hand them out to each person. Then I say to them, I want you to observe your lemon, your lemon. It's yours. And look at the characteristics on the lemon. Look at the lines and the bumps, and try to remember it almost like a person's face. And also, I want you to give a name to your lemon. So people make up names. Lucy the Lemon, Larry the Lemon, Harry the Lemon, you know, and Alan the Lemon, Frank the Lemon. It doesn't matter. They, by giving it a name, they are personalizing it.
2: Oh, that's interesting.
3: And I asked them to do this for about two minutes, three minutes. Then I collect all the lemons and I mix them all up. And I ask them all to come up and surround the table. And I ask them to look at the lemons, don't touch them, and choose in your mind which lemon is yours by the looks of it and and maybe even the smell of it, although it smells like a lemon. Uh, And I give them about 30 seconds to do that. And then each one then takes their lemon. Every time I do this, A hundred percent. Whoa. Everybody chooses the correct lemon. It's amazing. This is a lemon. A lot of lemons look very similar. But if you look closely, they have different grooves and lines and bumps. and, And some stand out more than other ones. And the color may be slightly different. It may be yellow, bright yellow, dark yellow. It doesn't matter. They concentrated on it. They digested it into their eyes and mind.
2: So you're looking for patterns and anomalies, things that stick out from the pattern and that kind of thing. That's exactly
3: what memory is. It's a pattern between two neurons that occur. Every time you remember something, especially something new, it's a pattern because the brain is a pattern-making, pattern-using system. And you do this 100,000 times a day and you create many interactions and connections. And uh, you're born, what, with a hundred billion brain cells. But by the time you're through with learning, you have probably 10 trillion connections in this little universe called the brain. Hmm. Two and a half pounds of brain.
2: That's not counting the fat.
3: Yeah, (laughs) not counting (laughs) the fat. You need fat in the brain. (laughs) You know, that reminds me, when we did that film, at Brigham Hospital in Boston in 2004, the neuroscientists put us under MRIs, functional MRIs, and we had to try to remember 450 names and faces which flashed above us on the ceiling inside the MRI. And at the end of it, they sat us down in front of a computer and we had to connect the right names with the right faces. And I think, if I remember the numbers, I got a something like 82%, and you got something like 78%. Wow. And, and, and that's pretty good. And the neuroscientist said something very interesting. She said that we have plump hippocampuses. Do you remember that? I do. I thought she was <laughs> but, flirting. Yeah. So I, then I thought we were fatheads. <laughs> what she really meant was that the hippocampus was filled with neurons. It was dense, like a forest, like a forest with lots of trees. And because of that, we are able to, to think and, and do and remember more clearly than someone who doesn't have that because of the things that we do in life. In my case, it's memory. I'm doing it all the time. In your case, It's acting, it's writing, it's producing, it's speaking, you know. So all those things are creating those interactions in your brain, making it more dense and stronger. That's what we call cognitive reserve. It helps us later on in life, which is around now.
2: (laughs) 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 I noticed the time was coming up. it seems to me when we're trying to remember something that seems to be on the tip of our tongue right what we're doing is we're looking for the hook that'll pull it up out of the bottom of the water and that hook is often association it seems to me my my experience it is
3: well actually it's a combination of visualization and association the visualization Uh, The channels from the eyes to the brain are 25 times larger than from any other sense to the brain, Mm. including hearing. So why not use the most powerful one? Uh, At the same time, when we get verbal information, the idea in memory is to convert or transform verbal information into visual information. If you leave it in verbal form as words or numbers or names... It stays that way, and it's difficult to, to put in long-term memory. But if you transform it into a concrete image, then you know where it is, and you could put it in your long-term memory. Then you could associate it. When you associate something, you're associating the new with the known. You have all that information in your head, and you learn something new. You're connecting it to something Inside there's some neighborhood in your brain which is similar
2: in category to that new piece of information. There's still something I don't, I don't quite get. What I don't get is how you go from observing something new or learning something new and associating that with something that you already know. What would be an example of doing
3: that? All right, I'll give you one. Take Pete Rose, the great baseball player. He has a record of 4,256 hits. It's a record that's just outstanding. Everybody thinks he did this by talent and skill and, and being a great athlete, but he did more than that. Every time he came to bat, he always took a black bat with him. It had to be a black bat. And when he got to the plate, he either swung at the pitch, he either fouled the ball off, he got a hit. He walked, whatever he did, he took that bat back to the dugout and he examined it. And on the bat were marks. And those marks represented where the ball, the pitch ball hit on his bat. If it was off, if it was too much to the right or too much to the left or too high or too low, the next time he would get up at bat, he would adjust his swing so that he would be able to hit it correctly. And he did this every time he got at bat. So what he was doing, he was using observation, concentration, visualization, and association, because he was associating where the ball hit on the bat with where he had to swing the bat. And that was like a map that he could read that he could then use to then achieve a great record in baseball. Hmm. Amazing. A- and everybody thought he did it by talent. He did it with his brain
2: <laughs> and his memory. Probably a combination of all of them. Yeah, sure, well, sure, absolutely. When we come back from our break, I ask Frank Felberbaum about the topic we began with. What's the best way to recognize someone's face? and just as importantly, put a name to it. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the Center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other in all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you, either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you.
0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills.
1: The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother
0: your weld is. Learn more at meta.com/metaverseimpact When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's gonna want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac?
2: You mentioned before, if you want to remember somebody's name, to associate it with a feature of the person's face. Right. Now, I have a little problem because I have face blindness. I know. (laughs) Prosopagnosia. You probably remember everything I've ever said to you. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a trick that I can employ to remember a feature of a face, or is it easier to remember one feature than the whole face?
3: Yes. If you try to remember the entire face then you have multiple features coming at you. It's confusing. You get distracted. So what you want to do is hone in and focus on one area. Like I told you to focus on my nose. I could focus on your nose, you know, or, or your forehead, you know, right. whatever. And you could do the same thing. Everybody you meet, just in that first five seconds, choose one feature. And there's always something on somebody's face that stands out, maybe their eyebrow— one eyebrow is thicker than the other. Maybe their cheekbones are high. Maybe their chin is pointed. Maybe their forehead is very high, which means they're very smart. You have a high forehead, and I have one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Smart and, and bold. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't choose glasses, though. No, Gla- you could glasses, a- mustache, and beard—they can change. They- Right, they could shave that off, they could they could get contacts, and then you're stuck. When I meet somebody for the first time, I do all the things we talked about, but then I use what we call the look-away technique. I make, you know, if I'm at a cocktail party, I'll have a drink in my hand, I'll sort of look up in the sky, you know, like I'm thinking about something, but what I'm doing is visualizing that person's face and name in my mind. uh uh-huh. And that little extra step solidifies that name and face in your mind. It sort of it connects. It makes the connection stronger, so that when you try to access it at a later date, or maybe five minutes later, uh, which most people have a problem with, they meet somebody at a party. Five minutes later, they don't know their name, and because they didn't
2: do anything, they just listened. This is exactly what I did when you and I were on Scientific American Frontiers, one of the episodes that we did on memory. We were sitting at a table with 12 people, and we went around one at a time in the beginning of the sequence, and they sa- everybody said their name. And I used that look-away technique. Whenever there was a l- little pause in the conversation, I'd think, What's, what, what part of that face is associated with the name, the visualization of the name, something quirky, quirky and weird. At the end of the sequence, I went around the table and remembered 12 people's names, which I ordinarily can't do, but I really worked on it. You actually
3: concentrated. You observed, you concentrated, you visualized, and you, you did all the things I just said that Pete Rose did, and I do, and you did it with those 12 people. Now, if they were if they were your jury at a trial, you would have them locked up.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Or the the other way around.
3: No, they (laughs) they would know you, and you would know them.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So tell me, with all of this prowess with memory, what have been some amazing benefits you've had from your memory? What what couldn't you have done if you hadn't worked on your memory so well? Well, I, I find that my
3: mind is very active. I have mental energy, hmm. not just physical energy. And when you have mental energy, actually actually, your body and your mind work together, okay? One of those is your gut. You know, there's a gut-brain connection. Right. And whatever you do in your uh, in your digestive system affects your brain and vice versa. I was thinking uh, that upstairs, downstairs program <laughs> yeah. that used to be on, yeah. everybody thought downstairs didn't affect upstairs. But when downstairs was having a problem and they had terrible food or people were sick or they couldn't go upstairs, upstairs was affected. <laughs> Just like the brain would be affected. Right. So, so you have an upstairs and downstairs. In, and, and I find that not only do I have mental energy, but my digestive system is better. Because don't forget, there are nerve cells in the lining of the digestive, the gut. It's about an inch, two inches wide. It's called the enteric nervous system. It has hundreds of millions of or maybe not hundreds, maybe about 10 million brain cells in there. And those brain cells are the same ones we have up here. It's the same, same cells. And so what you do here always affects what you do here and vice versa. I'm always learning because I'm always applying my memory systems to the new things that I'm learning. And I find it's, it's, it's fantastic. I, I have this, this, this energy that I, I, could be Captain Marvel. I don't know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I can imagine that it, it keeps you interested in the world around you. Yes. With all the new things that are being learned. And I bet it reduces stress, too, because we all have a lot of stuff on our plate that we have to take care of every day. The better our memory is in coping with it, the less stressful I imagine it is. If your memory is working at top level...
3: Okay? You feel very confident. For instance, you're going to do a play in two weeks. You will feel confident, which you probably always did anyway, but you'll feel confident that when you get on the stage and say your lines, you will know them. You are sure of that. You know that you know, and that's a great feeling to have.
2: Well, when I go out on stage, I know I'm going to remember some play, (laughs) so they'll get their money's worth. And you can outlive the rest. (laughs) It might not be the one that's on the marquee, but... (laughs) So tell me, have you ever forgotten anything important? uh, Have I ever forgotten? I don't forget my wife's
3: anniversary. (laughs) That's good. Uh, I don't forget her birthday. (laughs) A lot of people say, I'm I send cards to everybody, they say, how do you remember? I say, are you kidding? That's what I do, <laughs> and I care. And also, it shows that you care. You know, if you're in business or profession and you remember people's names and faces and what they do and, and their hobbies and their interests and what school they went to,
2: they love that. You know, it's not only business, it's simple friendship. Absolutely. If you remember the relatives of the people that you're fond of, even though you've never met them, it helps a lot. It helps to oils the friendship. Just the whole atmosphere. Uh, and, and whether you're with strangers or
3: you're with family, a lot of times you forget the names of family. I've, <laughs> I've done that. This is my uncle, and uh, the name doesn't happen. <laughs> that happened to In, me once with a relative. There's the answer to your question.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That same thing has happened to me. When I do a play, the play is in my mind in an intense way. And when I come off after doing the play, if there are guests in my dressing room, the memory of people's names is not as available to me as the words in the play. Right. My brain has been devoted to something else for two hours. So I could remember maybe three people's names in a row. The fourth one is out of luck. And one time it was my own wife, Arlene, It was number four. I just couldn't come up with the name. but I could come up with the third line in the play.
3: You know, just before I said to my wife, Jeannie, I said, what's the name of the actor in Casablanca who says, round up the usual suspects? The, re- I, the reason I, there's a reason I asked this. She didn't know. I didn't know. We still don't know. You probably know. Claude Rains. Claude, my, it was right back here. <laughs> the, 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 re- the reason I said that is because there's a technique that I use. If, if you want to remember somebody, you know you met them at a conference, at a class, whatever it is, but you can't, it's on the tip of your tongue. You can't get it. It's sort of dangling by the side of your brain. And, uh... So what you have to do is a little technique called the magic circle. You draw a circle, then you draw lines from the middle of the circle. And you start asking questions. Where did I meet this person? What was the conference? What were we doing there? What was the subject? Who was I with? What was I wearing? Was I with somebody? These are all
2: associations.
3: Right, searching questions. It's almost like the internet. You ask this question and it's searching in your memory. Right. And as you go around this circle, assuming that this is in your memory, all of a sudden you'll
2: hear a click. Yeah, this is what I did when you said Casablanca. That's right. And the line from Casablanca. I threw in hooks, association hooks, to pull up the fish. I saw the airfield at the end of the movie. Right. And I knew the guy standing next to Bogart said the line at another part of the movie, and I, but all I saw of him was his French policeman's hat. Right. And as soon as I said that, I saw, I saw him, and it was Claude Rains. So this was a series of associations that brought it right up to the surface.
3: Yeah, it may take two or three or four connections, or it may happen just like instantaneously. Uh, but I call this technique... The Casablanca technique, for that reason. <laughs> because what are you doing? You're rounding up the usual suspects. Oh,
2: great, great.
3: Right? So, so that, that's why, and that's one my favorite movie. I only saw it about 150 times.
2: Next time you got to watch the credits. <laughs> right, right. Claude Rains should have gotten an Academy Award for that.
3: And then there's, there's another technique. Let's say you're in your office and you're about to leave, or you're at home, you're, and you have your keys in your hand, and the phone rings, and you pick up the phone and you put your keys down somewhere, and you're talking 10, 15 minutes, you put the phone down, "Where are my keys?" And you spend 15 minutes looking for your keys. Oh, this
2: is a good: and, This is a good tip. What do you do? How do you avoid oh, that? Okay,
3: I'll, this will ensure that you never do this again. Okay? It's called the multi-sensory technique. You put the keys in your mouth. <laughs> well, that's good. But you, you take, <laughs> you take uh, the keys before you pick up the phone. Yeah. You, you put them down on the desk. Now you're looking at it and you're touching it. So using your sense of touch and your sense of sight. And when you put it down, you say out loud, I'm putting the keys on my desk. So now you're using your speaking voice and you're listening to your speaking voice. Four areas of your senses are working to put those keys down and remember it. Then you pick up the phone. That that whole thing that you did takes five or 10 seconds. You pick up the phone, you talk as long as you want, you hang up, guaranteed, absolutely guaranteed, you will remember where your keys are.
2: That's great. Frank, this is so much fun talking to you. I wish we could talk longer. Our time is running out. But we don't end each show until we do seven quick questions. First question. Of all the things you could understand, what do you wish you really understood? Wow, that's a tough question. Life. Life. Good, good, good. That's a, that's a hard one to get to. I agree. Next question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Uh, I I usually
3: say that I know something, but I don't tell them that they're wrong. Uh, I contribute a thought which they
2: then correct themselves with, uh, So
3: rather, rather than insulting them.
2: Right, right. <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> uh, strangest question. Don't say I can't remember.
3: Why is your license plate say Mr. Memory? <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's strange because why?
3: That they ask me every time I try. I have a license plate which says Mr. Memory. So,
2: so that's when you should say. I get say, lots I, of business that way. <laughs> that's good. That's good. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, uh, boy. Or do you? Sometimes you can't, but,
3: but sometimes you, you can listen to what they're saying and then use that as part of your conversation so that they're hearing an echo of what they're saying.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> Helps them listen if it's an echo of them. Right. Yeah, that's good. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you've never met before. How do you begin a genuine conversation? Have we met before? <laughs> no, no, no,
3: I don't say that. Um, this is a dinner table. Yeah. So so we're invited to, to somebody we know, we know their dinner table, so they know the same person I know. How do you know... Uh, Richard, right. how do you know? How, how do you know? I asked them the connection between why they're there, and then we go from
2: that. Okay, good. Next to last, what gives you confidence? Talking to you. <laughs> You're clutching at straws now. <laughs> okay, last, last question. Last question. What book changed your life? Boy, I've read so many books.
3: The one book that I remember, even from college, was Atlas Shrugged. Somehow that, that book stuck in my mind all these years. Mm. I think that was written by what, A. Ayn A. A. Rand, Yeah, if I'm, I'm mistake. That, that book stuck in my head. Great. Frank, it's so much fun talking with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. And don't
2: forget to call the uh, doctor in La Serena, Chile. Oh, <laughs> you remember <laughs> the doctor who saved my life in Chile? On was. October 19th. Oh, my God, that's right. That's my <laughs> new birthday because you saved my life, October 19th. <laughs> well, if I ever forget, I'll call you up and ask you, what town should I remember? <laughs> Thanks, Greg.
3: Okay, Al, thank you. It's been a pleasure, and it's great to see you again.
2: This has been Clear and Vivid, at least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for communicating science at Stony Brook University, so your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Frank Felberbaum is the president and CEO of Memory Training Systems. His book is The Business of Memory, How to Maximize Your Brain Power and Fast-Track Your Career. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio, Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Stephanie Land. Four years ago, she wrote a book called Made, Hard Work, Low Pay, and a Mother's Will to Survive. The book vividly detailed her life as a single mother struggling to survive by cleaning other people's houses. And it led to a widely praised Netflix series. She's now written a new book that chronicles how it was her lifelong passion for writing that led to her escaping the poverty trap that ensnares so many others. For Stephanie, the first step was a high-risk bet on college.
1: I took out the maximum amount of loans every semester. And I used the loans mainly to cover living expenses, which were incredibly low at that time, usually somewhere around $1,000, give or take. But that worked out almost exact to the amount that I was borrowing in student loans every year. After I graduated, I went home and um, took off my you know gown and everything and, and just felt so guilty for for going to college just because I knew the student loan payments were going to kick in and I was really going to struggle with that for the rest of my life and and I you know, as a person with anxiety, of course that snowballs into. I failed my kids. I'm not going to be able to put them through college. And so it, it was never something that I felt entitled to or that I even deserved just because it was so extravagant.
2: Stephanie Lane's new book is called Class, a memoir of motherhood, hunger, and higher education. Next time on Clear and Vivid, For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
1: At Angel's Envy, envy is a good thing. It motivates us in the pursuit of better. It inspires moments worth talking about. Moments worth remembering. Moments that raise the bar. Like crafting a bourbon. Even the angels would envy. Angels Envy. Worth the envy. Please drink responsibly. 2024. Angels Envy. Bottled by Louisville Distilling Company, Louisville, Kentucky.
0: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots...